Well, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a podcast and like the the pre talk is has been better than the actual interview, you know, because it's looser. Yeah, and it could happen, so, yeah. you know. I mean, it, yeah. I try to keep the whole interview that way, and I haven't done an interview since Paul Smith like a couple of months ago. I know you came out of like semi retirement for me, so you're, you're like the George Miller of of <laughs> podcasters. <laughs> You only come out for the really good stuff. You just sort of lay dormant for a while, and then you come back with Mad Max Fury Road, and everybody loses their mind. I hope yeah. so. I, we will do the intro, but you know what? Let me let me just you know <laughs> let me just play the intro, which you you'll probably I'll turn up the microphone so you can hear it. But um, Paul Smith actually said, "You know that intro is kind of long. You should probably shorten it up." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you hear these podcasts where it's like a three minute intro and it's like, oh, that's a little bit rough. But, you yeah, know, there are a mine, couple like mine's about yeah. a minute and a half. I think that's about as as long as you'd want it to be. Yeah, I might cut a little bit back. I was going to use the It's Greg one because I haven't used it in a while. Let's see if it works. It's hey, Greg. what? Get your hands up. Yeah, where you are. Don't move. Don't reach for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. It's, it's Greg. <laughs> interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Okay, since I was warned that that intro is way too long, <laughs> I will cut in immediately and uh, start talking. Oh, let me turn that one down so we can hear Josh because it's coming through the same channel because I'm not sophisticated enough. Can you hear me okay? But, but, but here's the thing. I like long intros if they're enjoyable. So uh, the, the new James Gunn uh, HBO series Peacemaker. He said that he set out to make an unskippable intro, <laughs> and he picked a song that's just and you know it, it, I'll be damned. Like it came on, and every time it comes up, I'm just sitting there not hitting that skip button because the song's so good. So, yeah, yeah. I gotta maybe I gotta do that. I don't know. I mean, I like my intro. It's it's completely unlike anybody else's intro. There's not any like cheesy music. There's not any like, whoa, this is going to be so cool and great. And we're very high, you know, high concept uh, and uh, very um, uh, conscious of how we're appearing and what, you know, what our audio quality is. All that. I am too, but I don't want it to seem like that. I, I want it to sound real good, but I want it to sound actually very informal and sometimes pretty stupid, especially in the intro, which is why yeah. I use Criswell. So you want you want it to sound like a Tom Waits album, right? You want it to sound yeah. good, but not polished. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Um, that's that, that's a that's a really good analogy. I've never really thought about it that way. And of course, you know, I'm I'm a fan of weights, so. Um, no, I I I I would be very sad if you tossed that intro out because I just had this moment listening to it, and it puts me right back in the car driving home late from working at UGA and listening to Radio Mysterioso. Um, so it's like, it sort of brings me back to my roots a little bit. It's, it's a, it's a grounding effect for me, I guess. Yeah. Well, me too. I think, uh, the new book is an ecology of souls, which is one of the longest paranormal books I've ever seen. It probably might be one of the longest paranormal books ever written. Yeah. Uh, with the appendices, yeah. it's about 265,000 words, which I think is a third the length of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember I did listen to your interview with um, Barbara because um, yeah. I didn't want to have to hit some of the same notes that you guys hit. And I, I remember you saying that, which is great. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I'm not saying that as, as a virtue because like, no, I no, really no. You're saying it. it as, Hey, you know, it's this long and be prepared for it. I'm almost yeah. apologetic, but I'm not. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be lying if there's not something that's in, in, in the back of my mind, that's a little bit proud of the fact that I had that much to say, but um, I mean, it just, it just, I, I wanted to, I really wanted to get in and out in one book. And in some ways I did because it is one book. Um, that yeah. I just had split into two for logistical reasons. But um, yeah, I remember time, you talking time, to me about it. There's so much background that you have to set up um, so that you're not constantly referencing back in the UFO stuff. So I just ended up being like, okay, we're just going to talk about the soul and then we're going to talk about UFOs. And that's not, not entirely accurate. There's plenty of uh, interpollination, cross-pollination between those two topics in the books. But uh, that's sort of the rough divide that you end up with. So you started out as uh, I got an intro. I wanted to read here, sort of, but it started out as a UFO death and UFO book because of Ann Streber, but then it just grew and grew and grew and metastasized and turned into this huge thing. I think that's what you told me. Yeah, I mean, it's um. So I look back at some of my other stuff, and I've been toying with this idea for a while, and that's again, it's probably part of why it's so long. I've been I've been playing with this idea probably since like 20 at least 2018 if not stretching back even further um in fact in at uh, paramania in new orleans i i gave a my presentation was you know what if it's all one big ghost story um, oh yeah so, that's right yeah yeah so that um ever since then like that was sort of the the seeds of this which have just been i've just been collecting ephemera in my head here and there um yeah and it blossomed into into ecology of souls a new mythology of death and the paranormal there there's a whole title to me, it's a combination of, I knew that, and then, how did I not know that? And then, oh my God, I never knew that. I mean, it's <laughs> it's like right right in my wheelhouse for, I mean, I'm reading it, and I'm just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. I'd never thought of that. I should have thought of that. Oh God, I thought of that a hundred times, but I never been able to express it in this way. So that's why I like the book so much. And I think it'll well, be a standard reference for years and years and decades, I think. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And that's that's very warming to my heart to hear because, you know, I lived with this thing for 18 months, basically, in a vacuum. And that's not to dismiss Barbara's input or, uh, you know, Mike, Mike, Clellan, yeah. did the, Mike, Mike did the layout and um, he had some, you know, he's he's sort of been seeing it as he's been doing it. But like, it's still pretty much a vacuum in terms of like, is this something anybody wants? <laughs> you know, and the thing I kept on coming back to was, you know, well, I would want to read this. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and write it. It probably could have some fat trimmed. Um, but um, the attitude that I've sort of taken is, you know, like a like a director who 
has had some success, but has a vision that they know that the studio will just interfere with and shut down. Um, and that's, and that was sort of this for me. I'm like, I, I, I could shop this around to some places, but, uh, I, I really just want this to be this way. Like this is the book. And if it is a massive failure, that's fine because this is exactly what I wanted to put out. I don't think it's going to be a failure uh, in the fact that, like, I think Mac Tony's cited, sort of told me the same thing about the crypto terrestrials before he passed away. And I was like, no, no, it's not going to be like that at all. It's going to be something that people keep coming back to. Um, and I think that, you know, that's how I think of this book. I, I uh, what, about, a, about a year ago, I think somebody told me that Hal Putoff was at a conference and he was talking, I think it was at um, a SSE conference, maybe. He was talking, this was overheard by a friend of mine. He said, hey, have you guys heard of this book, The, the Crypto Terrestrials? It's amazing. It's like, the book's 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing that, that boggles my mind about uh, this field. And maybe it shouldn't at this point, but like, you know. Not that he's not stupid that, not, or anything. It's just kind of like, sometimes things have to sit for a while and then suddenly. That's it, sort of a Fortean thing too, too, though, isn't it? Like, didn't, didn't Fort talk about, um, you know. The the tea kettle whispered the secrets of steam locomotion for centuries before we before it was steam engine time, and we just all said, "Oh, I guess we can do this now." Yeah, and you know what? These concepts are, compl- are are continuously re- rediscovered by people, and it doesn't you know it doesn't mean that the other person was dumb or the new person copied them or anything like that. It's just that good ideas seem to have a good life that go on for a while, and then sometimes the world has to catch up. That's another thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think of, uh, I mean, certainly the history of art and poetry and whatnot would, would suggest that the number of yeah, people or who music are or anything like, something. yeah, you hear a great band, you're like, oh my God. And you know, nobody else thinks it's great. And then like 20 years later, everybody loves it. Or there's something you think is crap. And then, you know, suddenly like a year or two or six months later or 10 years later, it's, you know, it, it, everybody loves it. And you're just kind of like, oh, I guess I didn't see how wonderful this was when it came out. Or you may still no. think it's crap, but. It's just the way things happen, you know. Ideas sometimes it's not their time, or it's after their time, or whatever. It, um, but in this book, I think there's a lot of things that are, you know, as I see them, before their time, long overdue, and quite, you know, um, present right now with what's going on, which is what makes it such a, you know, a great read. Yeah. At, at the same time, like I think that, well, maybe this is that long overdue quality. But the, the I thought about this the other day, and and I think that the 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 connection to death is not only something that, you know, Whitley's has sort of popularized in his, in his work to the extent that like, I just had to have a Whitley Strieber chapter, right? Because yeah. No yeah. Near the end of the second more book. Than yeah. yeah. Um, but also I think it's, uh, I, I thought of this phrase the other day. It's the, um, it's the implication that also haunts passport to Magonia. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Valet did this great job of, of saying, Hey, you know, this, current mythology looks like this older mythology, but I think there's a step further that you can take it and is saying, well, a lot of people view that fairy lore as being inextricably tied to the dead. Um, to the extent that, you know, not only would the fae folk be seen with the dead, but you have these stories of people being warned to not take food and drink from somebody who had died, you know, the year Mm -hmm. before, or like people who die and come back and say that they're now a fairy and that sort of thing. Um, so I think that like, I think that uh, this connection has been sort of just poking at the margins and, you know, some other yeah, things. A I mean, can equal C often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
if A equals B and B equals C kind of thing. You never realize that A equals C until something comes along and says, hey, it does. And people are slow to pick it up. But yeah, I mean, they start to realize, hey, A, in this case, there's a good case to be made that A equals C and that that's a fruitful area of um, um, research. Yeah, I mean, the the, the transitive property is a mighty Mm -hmm. powerful thing. but you know, I think there's some. I think Hansen was kind of on this too. George George Hansen was kind of on this too, and he didn't. Yeah. I don't think he quite perceived that too, because if you look at like you know, one of the major themes that runs through the book is this theme of psychopomps, and you know, can we view the UFO occupants as psychopomps? Yeah. And um, does he specifically you know, a lot, a lot say these, that? He doesn't. He he doesn't. Do I? Yeah, say I don't remember him specifically saying that. No, but yeah, that's no, a theme exactly, like you said. He, he 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 doesn't. But he also notes that you know, psychopomps, liminal threshold you know the ultimate threshold of death and, and you know there's a lot of you know, there are a couple of very prominent um psychopomps who are explicitly tricksters hermes is probably the, the best example so i think mm-hmm. that i think that this idea has been sort of um on the periphery of a lot of the 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 comparative conversations that are have been happening for a while and i just i guess i just had to make the subliminal liminal or something like that, or, <laughs> or literal I had, to, I had to make it literal yeah um, bring it and, up and through liminality and into hey have you guys thought of this or have you noticed this or yeah i wrote a couple sentences and i wanted to finish them the, reading the book it seemed rather than being a rare and ephemeral thing that placing the ufo experience in the context of something eventually experienced by everyone meaning death um, that's something like, you know, something seemingly as inexplicable as a UFO experience or a paranormal experience is almost normalized. And it kind of, kind of reminds me of the conversation I had where a friend told me that looked at it in the context of the universe as a composed of pure information rather than matter at its basic level, that UFOs and time anomalies and ghosts and strange beasts are actually pretty normal. And that's what I get with this book. It's like, it's a weird way around it, but it, um, to most people, but it kind of normalizes the UFO thing as, or even the paranormal in a, in a general sense, as something that's, that can be looked at as something that's pretty normal in a lot of ways. Well, I, I would, I would sort of employ with, some, with perspective. I, w- I would sort of employ some Terrence McKenna isms here and say that it's, it's a birthright and much in the way that he said that the psychedelic state was, you know, a birthright that we have. Um, mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, I thought today, you were going to do the Terrence McKenna voice. <laughs> no, I'm saving it for later. I can okay. I can show some gentlemanly restraint when I have to. Um, but um, but that's where you got but, the title too from from McKenna was Ecology is, of Souls, yeah. right? I think maybe it might have some origins elsewhere. Um, but yeah, that's that was a Terrence McKennaism. He said that you know after you crack through that chrysanthemum of the DMT realm and you you find your way down the tunnel and into this you know, impressive underground space, like you're under a mountain. Again, all these are all death motifs, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, he says, that, you know, it, it dawns on you that like this, there's something familiar about this place and maybe it's, maybe it's an ecology of souls. And I think that um, what I really, I guess the part of the reason that I was drawn to that, that is because I like the idea of an ecology and things fill, fulfilling certain niches because mm-hmm. um, I all don't working really... together um, uh, 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 as a, as a, um, what you what is that called? Not an ecology, but it, it's a um, and it, ecosystem. It, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's. I think that uh, I don't really come down too strongly on whether these are us or whether these are an, another intelligence. And I think at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter because you're dealing with this soul yeah. soup that we yeah, that we're all embedded know. in. But 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 to that extent, some things um, special dichotomies again. 
something specialized to to help push us past certain thresholds and perhaps even guide us along the way and to the extent that they guide us to the uh to the very end you know to that final transition which probably isn't a final transition honestly i mean that's just yeah that's a the, transition that, yeah, yeah well that's the other thing about this book is like you know i like to i like to push where there's mush and i do that with my politics and my religion i do that with everything except for my my cardiovascular health right <laughs> um <laughs> but uh but, you know, Meaning you're gonna you're going you're going to push into something that seems that doesn't seem to have a really good definition, or you want to find out the definition, or, and people aren't just using words, you know, or 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 to to attack things that I don't not attack that's the wrong word to attack vulnerabilities of mine or to interrogate things that make me uncomfortable. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you know, I try to do that you know, all the time with these. Well, yeah, I mean, you're my. I consider you my mentor. So <laughs> of course, of course. Well, thank you. I'm going to say, Oh, cut it out. But yeah, <laughs> um, well, it's just, it's just the mutual admiration hour here, I guess. Um, but i sort of did the same thing with, with thieves in the night is, you know, I, I said, okay, well, fairy lore is extremely similar to this alien abduction lore. How do I reconcile some of these differences with, you know, hybrids? And I think I kind of found a way to do that. But for me with this, like something that I had avoided, for forever and not from like an ideological place. I wasn't like personally religiously offended by it. I was just, I just didn't know what to do with it. And it was a little bit kind of icky and new agey to me is, is these ideas, this recurring thing of, you know, pre-birth memories and uh, reincarnation and, and, you know, past life memories and UFO stories. Yeah. You can use just, it a just, shorthand as a shorthand, but then you, when you start digging into it, you kind of find out if that shorthand is um, uh, legitimate or not. Uh, how, how do you mean? I'm, I don't think I quite mean it. it. Like you, you will throw off, like somebody will say, well, that's just like, you know, um, uh, what's a good example. People always use, um, quantum physics as an excuse for something, even though they have no idea what it means. That's what I'm, yes. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I can see that. I, I, I guess for me, I, what I was really trying to get at is, you know, if, uh, to employ another Terrence McKinnism, you know, if it's, if it's if it's true, it can handle the pressure. Um, and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, so, so if you're going to have a robust uh, stance of what on on what these phenomena represent, and if you think they're all interrelated, and you're trying to believe experiencers, you have to find a way to reconcile that. And I think just saying, well, you can't pay attention to all those reincarnation stories. I don't think that's really intellectually honest. I mean, that's the that's the irony of the what little backlash. Tim and I have uh, Tim Renner and I have received from where the footprints end is that I think like I definitely and Tim maybe to a lesser degree but I I definitely want Bigfoot I want Bigfoot to be a flesh and blood creature right but like I have to look at this stuff and say it looks like it's a little bit more complex than that um and so similarly like I just sort of so wanted to ignore it's these. intellectual honesty more like I guess so um but I also think that you know when you when you when you dig into that, you can find a lot of room for growth in terms of your perspective on these things, you know? Yeah. Um, which, which again, is why I think that people should apply this. I mean, I think, I think people should apply this to their political leanings as well. I think that the world would be a lot better place, but, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm constantly, you know, discussing with my friends. It's like, I heard this. It's like, is that true? Did you, are you do you just believe it? Cause it pisses you off. Have you actually, actually looked into it? You know, yeah. and sometimes yeah. it gets people pissed off at me and often I'm not wrong, but sometimes I'm right. And it's just like, see, you should, a lot of this, a lot of things that are fed to you are somebody's idea of what you should hear or propaganda or whatever, no matter what your belief system. Yeah. And, and it applies you know, it, everywhere, even in the, even in the paranormal. 
and and the ability to go back and say, "Hey, I was wrong about this or that." Is yeah, that's the is worst a virtue one. that yeah, it's a virtue that we don't <laughs> acknowledge or that we don't give enough. Uh, we right. don't give enough. We don't give well, enough praise. Yeah. But I think that's important too. When um, I want to get somebody to admit that they might have to question or that they're wrong, and I've said this before, I do it privately. I don't do it in front of people because then they'll they'll push against you even harder. Where it's kind of like privately, you send them a. Me- I've been in horrible fights with people online, and then I send them a private message and they're kind of surprised it's like why are you bothering me like this i said because i'm not trying to piss you off i'm not trying to make you look stupid i'm just we have a difference of opinion and then you know then communication happens because nobody's listening and it's not a it's you know it's not a a death match fight a cage match you know right well i i i like the idea that like you get one you're, you're allowed one disagreement with somebody before you have to completely write them off, you know? <laughs> um, no, you know what? I, it, it, if it depends on the person reacts to that disagreement. I mean, if they're yes. just viciously nasty about it, then, you know, I don't really need to talk to them anymore if that's the way they're going to be. But yeah. I will make, if it's somebody that I care about or maybe even not, but I think they're redeemable, I will bother them privately and say, is this what you really meant? Because I, I'm not trying to piss you off or make you look stupid or anything like that. I think we just have a difference of opinion. And if they're well, intelligent people and you know want to be understood, things will generally um, uh, uh, evolve after that. And maybe we'll get back with a book here in a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And, and, and to realize that somebody might have all the facts and they might have considered their position and their life experience is just so different from yours that yeah. you very well might've come to the same conclusion. I think we need to realize that, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, ecology of souls. Um. Yes. What is an ecology of souls? I think we kind of went over that a little bit. Um, and it, it was the initiating, is this just a whole bunch of things that came to you over time or did that, that Ann Streber quote just really say, look, I really should examine this from this point of view of death. Well, it was the Ann Streber quote, and also I, I have had found that one of my go-to... Um, In case people don't know it, what what, what was her oh, quote? This has something to do with what we call death. Yeah, she um, told Whitley uh, that once, and it totally yeah. freaked him out. Um, uh, I think that's, from from everything that I've read of Whitley, that's the, the most verbatim version of that statement that he Not, that not he freaked had. him out, but it was kind of like, a, it was like a, you know, a, a um, aha Light moment. moment or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there was that, um, but I, I had found in recent years that one of my repostes in uh, talking to normies about UFOs and why I sort of was sort of skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, um, I found like I found a good way to uh, get people to realize why I had problems with that by saying, okay, well, number one, this looks a lot like near-death experiences and shamanic initiations, but number two, like you have dead people showing up in alien abductions and during periods of ufo contact Mm -hmm. and that doesn't sound like little green scientists to me i mean there might be some component to that and i entertain some of that in the book right Um, you have to uh, yeah you have to because it's part of the the history of the the topic but um Mm -hmm. but so it was those two things that sort of got stuck in my crawl so to speak and uh I said okay well i want to talk about this i want to talk about how ufos are related to death and you know being sort of a, a pan paranormalist, um, because I see so many similarities between these different phenomena, mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, I've got to talk about the cryptids too. Okay. Okay. And then I said, okay, well, in order to do that, I've sort of got to give people a crash course on NDEs. And, you know, that's also an opportunity to familiarize myself with NDEs. And exactly. 
And then you end up talking about shamanism and altered states of consciousness. And, you know, I think a lot of the stuff in the book uh, might be familiar to some people. There's a lot of Kenneth Ring in there. Um, but I, I think what comes through as you look at sort of these different contact modalities to borrow a Ray Hernandezism, Ray Hernandezism, um, <laughs> yeah. is, uh, is that like contact is contact is contact. And these contact modalities look so startlingly similar. I mean, you know, we, we're familiar with the NDE shamanic initiation, uh, alien abduction sort of, uh, constellation we're familiar with that as as 14s right but you can apply the same thing to trips to fairyland and you can apply the same thing to some cryptid encounters and obviously you can apply some to altered states of consciousness because those are integral to the shamanic initiation and shamanic journey and ndes are you know definitionally a state an altered state of consciousness as well so um so a lot of the book is just sort of stripping down these things to their bedrock constituents and saying these, this, this suite of attributes appears across all these contact modalities. And the unifying thing that you find time again is that at the, at the bedrock of that is, is some sort of connection to death, right? You know, the number of, the number of entheogens that have some sort of mythological lore to death or are believed to send you to the land of the dead is, is, is legion. I mean, you know, ayahuasca is the vine of souls or the vine of the dead, for example. And, you know, a lot of these shamanic initiations are literal near-death experiences or at least simulated near-death experiences. And then you say, okay, well, it looks like something similar was going on with the Eleusinian mysteries. Like it was a near-death right. experience, right? Near-death experience simulator, I guess. Yeah, well, a lot of um, initiations are. Uh, Masonic initiations are. It, it, everything. It's all this dying to to be reborn as whatever that new um, uh, person is or that new awareness is. Yeah. Yeah, dying to death so that you can be reborn and start living and not mm -hmm. be preoccupied by death, right? Um, yeah. Or, so, or yeah. your former self or what you thought was your former self or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, like I said, there's some familiar ground in here, but it's also, um, I think it's just emphasizing, uh, it's, it's like taking a, a red highlighter and underlining <laughs> Kenneth ring, right. You know, yeah. and underlining and underlining Eddie Bullard, you know, um, it, it does a lot of that while also hopefully bringing some new stuff to the, to the conversation as well, because, you know, you can note these similarities, but when you, when you, when you sit yourself, when you position yourself in that death perspective from that focal point, I, I personally feel like a lot of these jigsaw puzzles come together in a really tidy way for me, or at least if not death, because some people have said, couldn't you say it's about like, you know, death and rebirth? Yeah, it's about death and rebirth and all that. Right. But death is the gateway for me to say, OK, this all looks like it has something to do with soul craft, uh, yeah. old perceptions of the soul that we used to know that we've long since lost. You know, the idea that the soul is detachable. That's a huge part of this. I am pretty much convinced that a lot of alien abductions take place in that sort of astral OBE state. Um, and yes, I know physical wounds show up on people. I, I address that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, this idea that the soul can wander, the idea that we have multiple selves, um, you know, that polypsychism, that sort of idea, um, yeah. the idea of the higher self. And once you get all these sort of soul concepts, then everything else sort of, for me at least really fell into line to the extent that like, you know, one of the things that I learned from you was that uh, it's sort of a bad idea to get set into a rut of thinking. And I'm kind of scared because I find this model so attractive and so explicative for me. And maybe that's OK. That's... You can be model agnostic and change it when things change. In fact, you said that in the interview, and I think you actually said it in the afterward for the book where you said, I may have a different idea about this in a year. In fact, I think, I think you I said, said you almost you hope you did. <laughs> 
Yeah, the, I the same thing I said um, was like, I hope what, what I was talking about 10 years ago, that somebody comes along and pisses me off with something different that has some substance to it. Well, and, and, but what I've come to realize since, even since I put this book out there is, you know, even if I do keep this framework, uh, for the rest of my days in this, you know, as long as I'm open to change, as long as it works for me, like it's okay to have that sort of framework. But what I found with this is that it just allowed me to fit, to nest everything into something that makes sense. Like now I have a means for saying that I, for now I can understand like what dog man is, right? Because mm -hmm. there's no, there, we're never going to catch a dog man. Like we're never going <laughs> to, we're never going to kill a dog man. Well, so what is that? And yeah. I found a way to work that out. Or like these stories of UFOs that turn into birds. Like why does, why does that, why is that something that you hear from time to time? And now I have a means of, of explaining that consistently to me even if it's on this vague sort of mythopoetic level well a lot of this stuff is you know I, I i can't find i've got like 40 questions here that i typed out um but one of them is um you know how do you what did you just say i'm sorry oh i just said that you know this allows me to incorporate some of the outliers that i just didn't have answers for before right, like dog right. man and like that's ufos it. that turn into birds like that's a thing yeah <laughs> and it happens more often than you'd think and until i you know put together some of the pieces with these universal ideas of the bird soul and some of these Jungian ideas about the ufo possibly being an exteriorized soul mm -hmm. in some cases um that's when like things like that sort of start to make at least a little bit more sense so that i can approach it and not just shrug at least i have some sort of way that it could possibly work you know that, yeah that exactly to my satisfaction yeah oh you know it, i can't find the question but it does bring up the thing the uh, issue um i bring this up with people and maybe you can help me here and they say uh, these are nuts and bolts ufo people they say well how is this going to make any difference in anything how is talking about what you you know your entire book is about how is that going to solve the UFO puzzle? Because it has nothing to do with data. It has nothing to do with, uh, with hard data and anything you can, um, you know, analyze in a way that's, uh, you know, scientifically analytical. And my answer is one, I don't know. And two, this is like half or more of the human experience is exactly yeah. what you talk about in, in ecology of souls. And what I, exactly. you know, uh, you and me and my, our friends have been on about for a while. That's what the UFO tarot deck is about, partially. It's just kind of like, you know, I don't know how to impress on people that science is only part of our brain and the humanities, which is why we have people getting PhDs in the humanities and the hard sciences and things in between. That's how things can be looked at, especially something as weird and ephemeral and non-explicable right now is this um so what it's it, it, it's you know to look at things in metaphor and with a sense of history about how people from all cultures looked at this is i think is incredibly valuable and can give you some perspective at least personally well i mean, I, I think you just have to change your priorities and your perspective bro you know i mean that would be my <laughs> response because i mean well because this is something that i sort of like Goldilocks to my way to in conversation with Whitley um, one, at one point is that it's, you know, people are scrambling and clambering for uh, disclosure and it's not 
I think they've I think disclosure is a valid concept, but I think that they've they've grafted it onto authority figures when the real disclosure is I know this sounds cheesy and like a Hallmark card, but it comes from within. You know, it's oh totally it's that personal gnosis. You know, you don't have you don't have to have someone tell you that we're not alone, whatever that might mean, right? You don't have to have somebody tell you that there is a, a super reality on top of this one. You just have to convince yourself and yeah. you have to follow that path. And I think that when we get lost in the weeds of, uh, yeah, if you of, want, you know, government conspiracies yeah. and if stuff. If you want Big Brother to tell you, then something's wrong with your understanding and comfortable. Uh, you're not comfortable with your your ideas or your beliefs or whatever it is because you want somebody who thinks is an authority to confirm whatever that belief is. Well, right, and that's sort of what we see, you know, writ large. Um, I mean, that'd be the one of the root political ills that we have today is that we want everybody to sort of feel the same way that we do. And, you know, um, regardless, regardless of your faction, like that's, that's a theme that we keep on coming back to is imposing our viewpoints on others. Um, and that's something that is just, yeah, I, I I think that, and I, and, and it's just so much more elegant to me. Um, this is my own personal bias showing, but it's so much more elegant to me that it's about this personal transformation and this personal gnosis than it is about, you know, being handed the keys to the kingdom by some sort of authority structure that's always looking out for their best interest and not yours. Yeah. I think I said that during the Mishlove's interview. He just said, you know, what, what, you know, what, what, what can, what can we believe? And I said, the motivations of somebody that's going to come from the government or intelligence or whatever um, or anywhere else of authority to tell you is not based on what you want to hear. It's based on what they want to do, what they're trying to do, and they want what they want you to think. And you know, right, and nobody thinks about that. They always think it's about them, um, and it's it's not. It's it's about something else, and you're just part of the clockwork of it. And and the only way to get that back, to take back that autonomy, is to realize, especially with weird things like this, things that are on the edge. That the only way to <laughs> the only way to have any autonomy in it in it is to understand it for yourself, even if it doesn't work for your neighbor or somebody down the street or, you know, Lou Elizondo or whatever. It works for you. Right. No. It, it, exactly. And this is and, a fourteen hundred. Um, how many book pages is it? Like fourteen thirty or something like yeah, that. I a think fourteen hundred page. Here's my journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and you know to that to that extent, um, which is the best kind I, of book. Well, you know, to that extent, I've been sort of monitoring what people say. And I think I saw somebody say, I think that I think his idea is crap. And I'm like, okay, well, number one, I know you didn't read it. (laughs) Are you is that just like a reflexive like uh, I don't like this idea. I'm going to kick it out, you know, or, 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 you know, have you, you know, because because all I ever ask for, you don't have to let you agree with my books or even like them, but just give them a fair shake and see the work that was put into it. That's all yeah, I'd ever ask for. You can't just say this, these ideas are crap. If you said why, yeah. I'm sure they've said nothing. Yeah. And, you know, you'll find some very little literal minded people who are like, well, they leave burn marks in the ground. So open and shut. And, you know, yeah, you could. I think the well, how would that... you, how do you answer something like that? I mean, I know how I would, but when somebody says, and that's one of my questions, you know, this dichotomy between the physical and what you talk about in this book, which is um, anything but physical, it all has to do with how we look at um, our, 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 uh, about our, at nature and our surroundings and our relationship to it. How do you reconcile those two for somebody like that? Well, I have, I have two go-tos and the first one, um, speaking of 
you know, the good Dr. Mishlove, um, was from that original uh, Thinking Aloud series where he has Terrence McKenna there. And Terrence says, this is an important point to make, which the flying saucer people are forever misunderstanding. <laughs> Saying that the flying saucer is a psychic object does not mean that it is not a physical object. Young and Mysterium Conjunctionis is at great pains to say that the realm of the psychic and the realm of the physical meet in a strange kind of never-never land that we have yet to create the intellectual tools to explore. <laughs> but, but if 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 people still push back on that as just you know, um, yeah, well, intellectual you know fiddle faddle. Yeah, I, like say, a but, skeptic would say that's using an unknown to explain an unknown. Well, what what I end up saying is is like, look, this is the same. It's the same thing that I say to people who push back on Bigfoot not being a flesh and blood ape. Mm-hmm. If you say if if you it, it just it, it reveals a real ignorance of basic parapsychology one hundred and one. You know, uh, I've, I've probably mentioned this here, but I think it always bears repeating. One of the earliest ghost hunting methods was to spread talcum powder on the floor and wait for footprints to appear. You know, yeah. ghosts slam doors. These are things that I think we would all agree are immaterial or non-material, yet seem to be able to, you know, influence the outside world. And yes. to that extent, sci phenomena is the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's probably even uh, a More better apt, point yeah. to make, you know, is that, like, Analogy. thought is definitely not material. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, ghosts might be material. I'm sure there's some materialists out there who say that someday we'll be able to, you know, have a ghost detector and trap ghosts or something. But yeah, but thought, Ghostbusters, thought, yeah. Thought is definitionally not material, and yet, under laboratory conditions from people like Dean Radin and Daryl Bim, they, they've 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 shown things to suggest that there is an interplay between the physical world and the non-physical world. So, if that is possible, then you can open the avenue to things being physical and non-physical, or being physical some of the time. Uh, like I think that, or like, being like, both, or not uh, having that dichotomy. You know, right? Well, and then there's you know, there's then there's the memory metal geeks who are like you know well. You know, your brain doesn't leave behind, um, your brain doesn't leave behind bits of metal in the desert. And like, yeah, you're you're right for the most part, but at the same time, you know, taking a Patrick Harper sort of stance, we have artifacts from all sorts of phenomena that that are, you know, imaginal, not imaginary, but imaginal. Right. That, uh, that sort of pepper our history from fairy flags to saints relics to, you know, tears from statues of the Virgin Mary. You know, and I I I think that. Mm-hmm. Something I'm something I'm, I started out as a Facebook post, but I put it in the book because I was really proud, and it, it seemed to <laughs> it really seemed to well, it really seemed I've to, done that. To, it's well, it seemed to articulate my my feelings in a way that I was like, I can never say this any better. Which is to say that you know what would a um, a scientific analysis of Hermes's staff or Thor's hammer yield? And, Nothing. Well, yeah, yeah, or, or it would say, you know, we can't make this on Earth, you know, and and yeah, and and you know, in in meaning and how it, would be, would... it would be it would be explicable or inexplicable, even though it's still physical. Exactly, and then how would a population that's been battered into believing that there is nothing beyond the physical react to that, you know? Um, and you know, I think that ties very much in with the ignore it uh, or get the... mad or believe. Yeah, yeah, ignore it or get mad or yeah or believe. Um, and and I think that the uh, the that's a theophany. governments the government's interest in secrecy I think ties into this too and this is another another Facebook post that made it into the book in a more articulate way but like which 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 story which narrative hmm. would upend your reality more that 
reality looks like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or that reality looks like the Odyssey. <laughs> you know, yeah. like which which is weirder to you, and which do you think might have a greater impact on keeping the status quo from from crumbling before your very eyes? And I think it's a pretty obvious answer to anyone. You know, you can at least sort of incorporate the idea of extraterrestrials, but if you discover that you are immortal and there are literal like dare I say spiritual forces beyond your, uh, beyond your comprehension at play, then not only is your life fundamentally changed, but the control structures, which authorities set up around you yeah. are rendered null and void, you know? Yeah. At least in the West and in the imported versions of that in other areas of the world. Um, yeah, because I think you make the point in the book, um, to jump around here is that, um, if you go outside of our culture, the, the stuff you talk about in the book is, not only dealt with it is normal it's normalized in those cultures yeah that's 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 part of the big problem for um why we don't have great ufo reports from africa you know cynthia hine did a lot of great research and <laughs> because you know, they don't think it's weird <laughs> yeah well right, right exactly it's incorporated and it's not thought of as strange so it just doesn't get reported as much i mean that's one one possible explanation that people have put out there and and there's also some indication that uh, i believe some anthropologists have found some anthropologists anthropologists with like a, a magical sort of bent have decided that um not only are these things underreported in cultures that have a more magical worldview, but that incidences of magical happenings might actually literally happen more in these cultures that accept and embrace it, which I think is really um, yes. consistent with a lot of the ideas that the Radio Mysterioso group, <laughs> Brain Brain Trust, uh, talks about a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, when people report that um... – Something like, you know, a, a paranormal test will work much better if people um, believe that it will work. And it's not because, you know, they suddenly report something that's not real because they think it'll work. It's because, you know, it, it, it you know, uh, the independent observer will say, hey, something happened. And if everybody in it is hostile to it, then things don't happen. I kind of think about that when I, I had a, got a big argument with a friend of mine once about um, Rory Geller. And he said, why do you believe that that charlatan and all is BS? I said, because it works sometimes. And he didn't like that. He says, he can't work sometimes. It either works or it doesn't. I said, no. He will fake it when he thinks that it's not working because he has to. And I think well, you that, know, you know, the, the, the phenomena that we're talking about may do something like that too. And my point was, I said, well, what about, um, there's a book called The Geller Effect, I think. or No, it's a, it's a book that's just, I have somewhere. It's uh he went around the uh, United States in the, in the mid-70s and went to all these different universities, and they all did tests on them. And one of the tests they did was they, they um, sealed nitinol, which is that metal that, that bends when you apply heat to it, inside sealed glass tubes. They gave it to him, and he gave them back to them. Um, you know, while they were watching, he gave them back to them bent, which means they would have had to be unheated. So I don't know if they were physically heated or not. But, you know, to me, that's just kind of like, he, and, you know, he said, well, he must have been, you know, they must have been in collusion or they were fooled by him. It's like, I can't answer that, man. I mean, it's, you know, it was a reported scientific study where they said this thing happened. We don't know what it is. There's plenty of studies in the book where they say either it's fake or we don't know. This one was like, we can't explain this at all. Anyway, I'm sorry. Well, well repeatable, but not on demand, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was wearing that T-shirt today. <laughs> well, 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 one of my favorite, one of my favorite explanation for things like Geller is that is a uh, comes from Soraya Ascath, and he's like, just because you see someone fake a punch in a movie doesn't mean that punches aren't real, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, or, or, that's or that a good the actor analogy. can't actually throw a punch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, they just need to do it for effect sometimes. And I think the phenomenon does that as well. It's, you know, it's going to be, it's always disreputable and ephemeral. And the thing I like to say that, you, you know, that comes from you is it's baked in. The weirdness, the disreputability is baked into it. I really think it is. And I, I mean, you know, that's the thing that I, I was having a conversation with a, another podcaster and it was a lovely conversation. This was just last night. And um, she said, yeah, but these explanations are always real convenient, aren't they? And I'm like, yeah, they, they are. Um, but, but again, like you can circle back around and say the reason they're convenient is because the phenomena wants it to be that way. You know, they want it to, <laughs> there'd always be that chance for, for disbelief and for marginalization. I mean, but again, like I, you know, I think trying to convince other people of, of the reality of these things is a is a young person's game. Um, yeah. You know, you just it's. I think that if you get to the end of, I might be besmirching some of the recent, uh, the, some of the recent departures that we've had in the UFO field. But I think I think if you get to be seventy or eighty years old and you're still trying to convince the world that the aliens are landing, like you think you kind of miss miss the boat there. But, yeah, exactly. You know. Um, you know it, it, continue speaking to the people that will listen to you and presenting things in an intellectually honest way. But like, I, I just, I, I think that I don't think that's the point. Like, you know, I'm, I'm never yeah, going to see yeah. an answer to these mysteries in my lifetime, but you will see an answer to the mysteries after your lifetime. I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it, we're, at a certain point, you just have to, um, it, it, you know, it's your own, <laughs> it's your own journey. Um, you know, that that's uh, another quote I wanted to put on a t-shirt. It exists. What do we do about it? I'm, 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 you, you and mm. I and everybody we know are past the point of, you know, does this stuff actually happen? Well, it does. But what do we do about it? Do we do what you did and write a, you know, an in incredible book about um, your idea of it? Or do you um, just go out and experience it? You know, just quit your job and go out to what do you do about it? You know, do we put it in a lab? All these things are good and all these things should be done. But yeah, I mean, it, it gets past, you know, I'm kind of past people saying, well, it's BS anyway, and there's not proof. And it's like, get out of my way. Yeah, I mean, I think that if there's, I think that another answer to, you know, these things exist, what do we do about it is another, like, maybe, maybe it's a Timothy Learyism, but it's, I know I definitely heard St. Terry of McKenna say it as well. As you like, you know, when you, when you get the message, hang up the phone, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And then, yeah. you know, pick up the phone and call somebody else. Hey, let's get back yeah. to the book. What's your working definition of a soul since it's about the ecology of souls? Well, um, that was something that I struggled with for a long time because, you know, I, I say in the beginning that, you know, I'm not you could you could try to make a book that tries to redefine what ghosts are and what the afterlife is and souls and like maybe try to bring in some quantum mumbo jumbo and like time. I didn't even touch time in the book, even though yeah, it I know have. you talked like, about that with Barbara. It'd be a whole nother book or two yeah, or like three. It, Hand that off to be. Eric. So like, Eric Wargo. So, so I, tr I, I tried to sort of avoid that. But um, if I had to be forced into a corner to say what a soul is, I would say that it is the animating life force. Um of which we are each minor concrescences um, that uh, is devoid of ego. Um, and my, my conceptualization of it nowadays is, is probably something akin to the water cycle where, um, you know, we, we, we have mm. these little, these little, uh, little tiny waves of, of ego that bob up and down on the surface of the ocean, but we're always part of this greater hull. And the reason I like sort of a, a metaphor like that is because, you know, one of these things that people say, 
lot of people who like to poo-poo reincarnation say, well, how come there are more people on Earth now than ever before? And how come you have people who both say that they were, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte um, in a past life? And it's like, well, that's 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 a pretty literalist way of thinking about this one-to-one relationship. Yeah, it's and not I don't a factory, think... man. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, what's what's the upper limit of how many waves you can have on the ocean? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, George yeah, Carlin said somebody's ocean. printing yeah. up souls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know... Yeah, yeah. Or the idea, and I really do think though that that sort of water cycle metaphor is useful because then you see that like, I I suspect that once you get past that tr- transition, it's just a big old mixture. Um, because you do have something I talk about in the second book um, is this concept in ufology that uh, oh there's a there's a parapsychological term for it, but I can't remember what the term is. But in some UFO circles, it's known as um, a dual soul. The idea that part of you is alien and part of you is human and mm-hmm. that dual soul might sort of leave and come back. And if you sort of take that perspective that um, that we are dealing with some sort of giant soul soup on the other side of the veil, it sort of makes the ideas that you might be part alien a little bit more palatable than, you know, you might first <laughs> appreciate when you hear it at the UFO conference. You know? Yeah. And then we have a problem with language and saying, you know, saying, using those terms, which every single one of them are loaded. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, that's part of it. I, I, I do think that there's something to a lot of these polypsychic ideas as well. Um, you know, I, I think that's something that I think that we might have a better grasp on our own emotions if we really appreciated it. Because we still talk in terms of like, you know, my head and my heart, you know, we still have the sort of dualism in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we treated that a little bit more of a, as a reality, we could sort of reconcile some of the conflicts that we have um, with our day-to-day thinking and our, and our emotions and whatnot. And, you know, that idea of the separable soul or the wandering soul or the, you know, the polypsychic idea, um, you find throughout of various ancient cosmologies, um, you know, I would, I would go so far as to say literally every ancient people, um, even those separated by oceans, um, yeah. had, had similar beliefs and, and, uh, yeah, they, they, they did not have the noise that we've had for the past three or 400 years in, in, uh, in, in our, in our, in, in our culture. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and telling you, know, you what that is, you know, I, I don't know if older is, is better because that's sort of a traditionalist kind of max. Uh, axiom oh yeah. That Priscia um, Theologia thing. Oh yeah. Prisca Theologia Prisca, I think is, yeah. is interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's why this book kind of ends up being very Jungian in terms of how it lands at the end of the day is because I do think that, like, we're dealing with a lot of these archetypal ideas that, I, you know, people people sort of, like, end up getting minorly offended when you suggest that these that the collective unconscious might be real and that there are archetypes because that means there aren't any aliens you know um <laughs> and and I, don't, I think that people like are so wed to these ideas of these things being non-human and separate from us that they that they fail to see the wonder they can't see the forest for the trees right they fail to see the wonder in the idea that like if the collective unconscious is real that's mind-boggling yeah. um and you know it's 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 just as remarkable i think that as uh in fact i think it's more remarkable than the idea of of little green men coming down from outer space um i'm sorry yeah. I, I feel like i'm feel like i'm rambling here a bit that's okay um, no this this show is for rambling and it's yeah that thinking is just way too goddamn literal and if you start being literal around weirdness you're going to just you're going to get caught in webs of bs and webs of you know uh 
your own making, really. And then the webs that that, that everybody has left for you, everybody in the last, you know, for the, all the way from Greece up to now, um, and especially maybe in the last couple hundred years. And that um, if you let that rule, what you're, you know, if you let other people tell you what real is, you're never going to go anywhere. I think you you have to kind of step off that cliff as you've you've done here, um, and start making your own connections and start looking at um, things with the eyes of people who are not don't agree with you or don't come from your culture or whatever, because that perspective is is um, it's very valuable. It's I mean I think that's everything is perspective really. With, with just about everything, but especially in this area where we don't have any fixed ideas about things and we shouldn't. Well, you know, it sort of puts me in the mindset of, uh, of the idea that if um, Richard Dawkins wore the God helmet, would he see anything, right? You know, or if, or if Richard Dawkins took five dried grams in silent darkness, yeah. would he see anything? You know, and I, I kind of think, you know, Miguel suggested at one point that people like Dawkins might be God blind. And it almost begs the question of, whether reality is different from person to person, um, you know, it is. I think there's an issue. It is. And an it should be probably. It is. I think there's, an, I think there's a lot of questions that you can ask and discuss when you're asking other people to accept something that, that yeah. you think is real. Um, but at the yeah, same but time, ego gets in the way and then things start happening right. and people beat on each other. Go ahead. Right. But, 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 uh, but I kind of wonder that if, you know, um, that if, uh, for Christians and, and Muslims, like, to to each of them, these things are objectively real, while they're not objectively real to the other. You know, I kind of wonder things like that sometimes. Yeah, I'm a, well. You, I don't know what the reconciliation of that is, except to unhook from, you know, while being comfortable. And you talk about this in the, at the end of the book about your faith and all that. Well, while being comfortable in your faith, you can still go out, you know, on these, uh, go out on spacewalks, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that that's something that gets back to how I wanted to, uh, well, number one, I think, I think the, the primary way to reconcile that in day-to-day life is to treat everyone with dignity. Um, yeah, just you know, be nice to people, you know, just be and, nice to people and, you know, just treat everyone with dignity. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, this, this, uh, this is probably part of the reason, too, why I wanted to self-publish this book is because it's so personal to me that I really didn't want a lot of other fingerprints on it. You know, I mean, Barbara's, Barbara's fingerprints are on it, but, I, you know, I think Barbara and I are simpatico enough that, that you know, that, that's not an issue. Um, but, yeah. like, this book was – a lot of this book, and it doesn't – it comes through – it's in the it's in the body of the book, but it comes through strongest, obviously, in the in the afterward um, is me trying to reconcile these things and figure out how I can uh, how I can still, you know, call myself a Christian. Yeah, hold and, on to your faith and, yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know that, you know, I'm something of an apologist, I guess, um, because I always sort of feel sheepish even mentioning that. But like I've it's not, it's not apologist to me. It's a it's a well, it's a it's a um, honest um, self-assessment of things, which almost nobody does. And when they do, people notice. Well, I, I whether I just, whether they I agree have, or not. <laughs> I, I, I've been I've been sitting with this this polarity for a while of of thinking that there's something to these things and that it is tied to our souls and also having my own Christian faith. And I I have found 
the process of writing this book and researching this book has allowed me to find a way to make it work. And that's basically what the afterward is. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can skip it if you want to, but, um, it's definitely the most personal thing that I've ever, um, put out there. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think it should be in there. I'm glad Barbara told you to include it as a, as an afterward and, and to make it personal, if that's what she told you to do, because it gives context for the whole book. It's very honest and it's actually really well written. It's it's I think it's the best written part of the whole book, actually. I kind of suspect that as well, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I read it to my wife um, in one of my later edits. I, that's the only part of the book that she's read. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a it's a it's a tension that I always live with. And, and one of the things that I have uh, have sort of settled on the metaphor that I employ in, the, in that portion of the book is that like, you know, I'm, I'm like a child fascinated by a watch and I want to pry it apart and see how it works. And I'm not, <laughs> you know, the watch is, the watch is there, but no matter how much I learn about the watch, it's never going to tell me what time is. Uh, it's not going to make me punctual, but, but I can yeah. still be fascinated by the watch. And I think that's sort of what, what I'm doing with a lot of this stuff is, um, you know, Fortiana is the watch and I don't think it really needs to impact my sense of time. You know, um, and if, if I continue that metaphor, um, but uh, but at the same time, I'm a, you know, I, I I think that anybody who says you're not respecting time because you're looking at the watch is just got their head got their head screwed on wrong. You know. Yeah, well, that's it's an aspect that you can grab onto of that of time, and so it's like, what do we have to describe time? Well, it's a watch. Well, it's not. I mean, there's other things too, but it's a but, right, as, exactly. but as a metaphor, what else do you have? You know, yeah. you, you have to, you have to use the tools that you've got and then try to, this is what I talk about sometimes with, um, with, uh, abductees or, or, well, the UFO thing in general, we're in the way of that understanding. But the thing is, all we have is our instruments and our brains and our, and our culture and our, all that, you know, um, what lies beyond that? And the only way to do that is to use the tools you've got to try and find that ephemeral thing, or at least understand it in the way that makes sense to you or is useful or, you know, puts you at peace or whatever. Um, and you do right at the beginning of the book, you mentioned co-creation. Um, yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's a thread of co-creation that runs, runs throughout. Um, uh, and I think it's, I think it's extremely useful. And I think it's one of the few ways that you can sort of sit with that, that, well, to use the same phrase, sit with that tension of uh, physical mm-hmm. and non-physical uh, in a meaningful way. And to, to that, I sort of pile on a reinvented Patrick Harperism of imaginal versus imaginary and the imaginal being from your head while the imaginary is in your head. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that's I think that's I think it's a useful way to talk about this, um, because if, if you can sit with that sort of duality, it opens up a lot of the um it allows you to, to make some peace with some of the ambiguity that we see, mm-hmm. you know, that was actually well, part of part, part of the question, but go ahead, finish your thought. Oh, no, 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 that's, that's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much it. Okay. Cause, cause, um, you know, to, in relation to that, um, what do you think is, and this is, you know, something that still sits with me and I just described it now, what comes from outside? What comes, what is the initiating force in a lot of these things that comes from the outside and you know, what happens if, after it hits your conscious and a conscious awareness, what, you know, how do we figure out what's coming from outside and what's um, what is our interpretation of it afterwards that we tend to think is the, is the reality of it. That's a really, it's a difficult problem. that has been dealt with by, you know, philosophers, but from, from forever, but in the book, how do you deal with that? 
I mean, I, I pay a little bit of lip service to monism. Um, right. Which I think, I think a, a pretty. Tell everybody what monism is. I guess it, it's not necessarily, <laughs> you know, religious. It can be, I guess. Everything's everything. And in, in that, you know, distinctions, especially like mind body distinctions are, you know, are, are falsities. Um, and I think that uh, a close reading of the UFO literature and sort of the messages that you see from the contactees through the more pleasant um, modern era of interactions um, all speak to that idea. You know, I am one with the, we are one with the one that is all mm -hmm. I am you and you are me. It is the you are the me within the you know, there's there's even an example from the from the communion letters where um, I think there's an experiencer named Bill and he meets this like character that who identifies itself as God. And he says, well, what's your name, God? And God goes, Bill. <laughs> um, Why not? <laughs> which, you know, is, is another idea that probably gets me another idea that I flirt with that probably gets me into trouble with my Christian brothers and sisters is, um, you know, the idea that somehow, uh, the idea that we might be God. And I know that that even feels wrong coming out of my mouth. Right. But if you look at a lot of the scripture, the idea that the kingdom of heaven is within, I think yeah. speaks to that. And the idea that like, we're, if, if you have that sort of monist perspective, then of course we are, you know, it's this, um, Oh, there's another term for it. Um, not pandeism. It's something Holism? like, I don't that, remember. But, um, I can't remember. I don't have the PDF open in front of me, but like the idea that, you know, um, pantheism, we, we are the divine's attempt to observe the universe. You know, the idea yeah. that they're spark of the divine within all of us. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's really consistent with that idea. And this, you know, as luck would have it also highly consistent with, um, a lot of atheist interpretisms, interpretations, which are, you know, yeah. reincarnative in scope, even though they don't realize it, you know, you have, yeah. You know, we are star stuff. That's basically the same idea. Yeah, I've I bring this up in in uh, interviews. Um, the that um, <clears throat> Alan Watts quote, um, where there where there are rocks, watch out because eventually they're going to get up and start moving around and thinking. Yeah, um, there you that, go. That, that, you know, consciousness or whatever you want to call it is an inherent property of property of matter given the right, um, the, you know, enough time and the right conditions. So yeah. You know, it's 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 inherent within within matter to have you know that the, uh, we've been talking about this the entire time practically. But well, it, yeah, I mean, the, the life wants to emerge. You know, it's yeah. just ju just as entropy is something to which all things tend. I would suspect that anti the, the organ the organ the or, yeah anti entropy I guess or or you know the organization sufficient to bring about life is something that the universe also craves. You know, or you know. Yeah, I think I think, you know, uh, most religions would say the same thing that, you know, the divine creator wants to see life arise. Yeah. And you did um, you did bring it up that, you know, the idea that uh, God created people and consciousness in order to see what not being God is like. <laughs> right. That duality, whether if yeah. it's true or not. But it's a nice I think it's a great model. I think it is too. And I think that it allows you to view other human beings in a more humane light, you know, mm -hmm. um, nothing else. The, not only the monist idea that we're all sort of the, we have this shared quality, but also the idea that uh, you can't profane that person, no matter how much you disagree with anything about them, because they also contain that divine spark and you're profaning the divine spark as well. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that uh, Watts said. I used to listen to him like, you know, for hours, but he said, you know, that he was, somebody came to a, a Zen priest or something like that. It's like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this, you know, this, uh, 
bad situation I find myself in, whatever. And he says, the guy's just looking at him and smiling. You think he's not making fun of him. He's looking at the person and saying, and seeing that divine person, <laughs> divine thing in that person and in their eyes and just going, <laughs> you're, you're looking at yourself here. You, you know, we're not, you know, you, you, you is different from the, the pain that you're feeling. This, this is a, you know, he's looking at the divine within you and just saying, you know, why, what, how could you have, <laughs> dear Krishna or whoever, how could you have been so, <laughs> how can you get so, uh, wrapped up in yourself that you don't realize that uh, we're the same. So I think we're getting a bit new agey here, but we'll get back <laughs> well, to the book. I mean, but it, it's relevant well, here with the, with the, with your, yeah. with your subject. Well, and you know, I mean, to bring things back down to earth a little bit, I guess, rel- relatively speaking, um, whatever. Yeah. You know, I, we're, we're talking about some pretty heady concepts here, but the book is, you know, is also very hands-on in terms of saying, you know, let's look at occupants and the ways that they reflect the death motif. You know, I, I find it interesting that, uh, as exemplified by the Roswell slides debacle, yeah. um, if you tried to draw a skeleton of a gray alien, it would just look like a gray alien, you know, <laughs> which, which, which in turn would look very much just like a human skeleton. Um, and yeah. then even, even the things that aren't grays, I mean, um, everything else. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like, you have these sort of, you know, you have these aliens that are half Earth animal. It's almost always an Earth animal, right? Yeah. Half half Earth animal. There's a few amoebas right? and blobs and tin cans yeah, and, and all that. But there's, there's also a lot of these, what you what you refer to as psychopomps, which is, um, you know, partially. There's a famous one in France where they were bird-headed entities just, like, parading across this road, I think. Exactly. And and so when you see like, you know, the, the three main animal psychopomps, dogs, birds and horses, when you see those cropping up throughout the UFO literature time and time again, it really gives you pause because I think an argument could be made that those three animals are the things that we see in terms of earthly animals, not in terms of the occupant's appearance, but in terms of just being associated with UFOs. I mean, mm-hmm. um, the bird thing is obvious through, you know, Mike's work. Yep. Um, the dog thing i mean there's so many examples of dogs seen in conjunction with ufos you know from alan godfrey to you know big Bo. um <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh and um and then you know the horse thing is a little bit more oblique but you've got the history of cattle mutilations which in the modern era at least began with snippy yeah and uh and then you've got this really strong uh constellation of belief between the horse royalty and the sun and uh the sun of course is also a psychopomp symbol because it descends nightly to the underworld sometimes carrying souls with it in certain cosmologies it descends to a stellar underworld which is you know stars mm-hmm. and everything and then it returns each day it's a symbol of rebirth but the horse is associated with that um very strongly and as such is a psychopomp in you know both the new world and the old world um Maybe you so should like, define psychopomp for people because it's a it's a it's a term from comparative religion. Yeah, leader of souls, um, a, a figure that could be a natural phenomena, could be a, a you know a flesh and blood animal, could be a shaman, could be uh, human ancestors, could be a deity, could be a folk figure like the Grim Reaper. But it's a figure mm-hmm. that leads you across that transition of death. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that there would be a psychopomp encyclopedia out there, and there's not. Uh, there are a couple of dissertations, and that's about it. Hmm. Um, so I I'd guess ask the people <laughs> at Pacifica, there might be something, but yeah, you're right. It might just be in dissertations. Yeah. I haven't been able to, I, haven't been able I think to there are, it's just not called that. 
It's just it's well, just it, mentions like Hermes, blah 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 blah. Also a psychopomp. Right. Well, it's it's a little bit difficult too because some of these figures pull double duty, you know, with other things. Like mm-hmm. Odin is a psychopomp, but Odin is not just a psychopomp, you know. Yeah. Um. So certain figures like that, you'll have pull multiple duties, but um. So yeah, so like I, I would argue, you know, among the you know Mercia Eliade's psychopomps par excellence that he talked, animals that are also very closely associated with shamanism, birds, dogs, and horses. I would argue that, um, you know, the horse is a UFO because of that horse sun, you know, UFO uh, connection. The sun being an aerial glowing disc, I think, mm. is an identified object. But like, I think that you can make a chain of of some of symbolic connection there um, yeah, and horses pull, not, not, pull um not, apollo's chariot across the sky yeah. it, exactly yeah. exactly so not as not as transitively strong uh as the dead fairy alien thing but i think that you can make that case as well and what i find really interesting is that you know as as we sort of evolved as a species and we mapped every corner of the world and we decided oh i guess that the afterlife is not on the other side of that mountain range and it's not on an island out to sea and i guess it's no longer under the earth either we sort of were able to retain the idea of the afterlife or the other world depending on what you want to call it um being in the sky, being in the stars, and all those hopes and beliefs, I think, were grafted onto that. And I'm not saying that it's in your head. Uh, I'm not saying any of that, but I'm saying like that body of belief was attached to that. And with that, it got commingled with a lot of these other symbols. And I think it's really telling that one of the most prominent psychopomp symbols is the fairy or the not the fairy, like <laughs> F-A-I-R-Y, but like F-E-R-R-Y, um, the fairy boat <laughs> yeah. uh, to the other side, you know, um, you see that time and again, most famously with the river sticks and Charon or Karin, um going across the river. Yeah. Um, and, and, in, and in Chinese culture and Japanese culture and yeah, probably exactly. many others. You know, the earliest call. And you always have to pay too. That's another thing you pointed out in your yeah, book. Yes, exactly. Death and taxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, the, but, you know, uh, some of the earliest coffins were boats as well. You know, we've, we're familiar with Viking burials, which didn't always, weren't always sent out to sea and weren't always set aflame, but people were buried with boats in ancient Egypt and in Norway. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah, 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 exactly. Isn't that what a flying saucer is? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean. It is a uh, it is a thing that carries you somewhere else or brings the a, thing that is somewhere else to you. It is a yeah, it is a means of transportation to the other world. And then when you get this I don't think it was literal though in 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 you know, I I tend to think probably in a lot of these uh cultures that we're just talking about here is that it they realized it was a model. Right, but at the same time, you know, you're also you have to have that grounding in the real world for yeah. there to be an afterlife or, or an other world imprint, right? So you have grave goods that, you know, I don't know how many people believe that this golden chalice actually made it to the afterlife with the Pharaoh, but they, we were going to bury it with them nonetheless, you know? Um, yeah. I, I which, think they, maybe they thought of it as symbolic and, and also literal as well, or there's no difference to them. Well, you know, I just thought of this. Um, you know how fairies would consume the foison of the food and leave the food behind. They consume the essence of the food. Maybe that's where these, um, these, you know, pharaohs' curses come from. Is that the essence of the grave goods has already been taken to the other side? So just as you shouldn't consume food whose essence has been deprived by the fairies, you shouldn't take the gold that's in the chamber because it's somehow that essence, had that essence deprived. That's not in the book. I just thought of that now. No. Yeah. Cause you um, did mention about uh, cattle mutilations as being grave goods and having the essence deprived of the cattle and the, uh, the, um, the symbolic, uh, import of that. 
Yeah, I, I can see because you know a lot of these, a lot of these animal sacrifices tend to be things like livestock, especially horses. You know, in that, in that, in that example, um, something actually very valuable too. They're not going to sacrifice like a squirrel or something. Ex- exactly, exactly. I mean, you do see like you know, uh, raptors and, and things like that that are sometimes sacrificed, or ibises in Egypt as well. But mm-hmm. but for the most part, yeah. It's, it's oh, kinda, there's kinda, the sirens for Radius Mysterio, so. It's a it's an official Radio Mysterioso show. There's been like um, three or four, but I've turned the mic down. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> but, um, no, no, you're good. Um, I was, but I was, I was gonna say that. Um, uh, yeah, it's almost like the phenomena continues on and still needs that sort of supplication, even though we aren't providing it. So it's like, well, I guess I'll do it myself. And these are sort of you know grave goods that we just don't know what to do with because they've been they've been mutilated. You know. Um, it's it's an idea. There are a lot of different little ideas that I flirt with in a paragraph, and then I you know, retreat back to more solid ground. Um, but yeah, I, you know the, the the boat motif though. I just can't get away from that idea that um, that the the flying saucer is is somehow a reinvented psychopomp boat, uh, which I mean, you know, is sort of a very Valean idea, I guess, with the ships coming out of the clouds from Magonia and whatnot. But um, mm-hmm. but again, the idea of the the, the trans the fact that the UFO phenomena is defined by transportation, I think is, I think is really telling. And in any sort of transportative motif can be used as a, as a psychopomp or death symbol. I mean, when Whitley had, when Whitley, when Anne had her near death experience, Mm -hmm. um, she was in a subway station and people were, you know, picking up their bags and leaving. So it's obviously a reinvention, um, you know, of, of, uh, of that motif. Yeah. Um, and she was underground, etc. Yeah. yeah. I have a question about, um, we've cr- scratched about, you know, 1% of what goes on in, uh, ecology of souls. Um, you discussed the NDE very early on. Um, how was that an entry for you into exploring this, the ecology of souls, um, idea? Well, you know, I, I had a sort of a, uh, guiding philosophy since my first book is that I want to make these things so that, you know, if it's your first book on these topics, you can come into it and appreciate jump right it. in. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's your 101st, same thing, you know, so I felt like it was necessary to provide sort of an NDE primer primer, if you will. Um, but, you know, like I said, it was also an opportunity for me to learn some things and also an opportunity to underscore that, you know, there, there are very few hills that I will die on um, in these topics. Um, but psi phenomena is one of them. And I'd have to say a close second is some of this NDE and reincarnation research, which is absolutely stellar, often has veridical confirmation. Um, and is just so consistent across a lot of different cultures that it really suggests to me that this is like, I think I say in the book, um, just as we have, uh, climate change deniers now, I think we should start employing the term near death deniers, right. (laughs) Or near death experience deniers, um, because these people are just not paying attention to the to the evidence at hand, I don't think. I think they're willfully ignoring it, despite the overwhelming amount of evidence that we have. Yeah, they're just, are you still there? Uh oh. What? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I had coughed. Oh, okay. You you turned on the cough button. I just turned this down because somebody, everybody decides to start up their very noisy cars outside when we're doing an interview. Um, and we we lost the thread, but um. No, it was just about NDEs and how I how I. Oh, that's right. I said, yeah, we need to start 
referring to some of these people as NDE deniers. You well, know? there's a lot so. of people that, yeah, that's that same thing. It's like, it exists. What do we do about it? It's like, I'm, I'm past discussing whether something exists or not. Let's decide. Let's talk about the implications of it. Um, yeah, but I think I think the NDE stuff is a, is even more confronting than the Bigfoot stuff or the UFO stuff. Oh yeah, because, well, it's like, very it's, personal. It's it's such a well, it's it's personal, but there's also like some really good documentation, you know. Yeah. Um, oh you know, yeah, 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 yeah. You you point, talk about a lot of it about Moody and then yeah. even about um, um, reincarnation with uh, Stevenson and people like that. Yeah, and, and you know, and of course, you know, you can you can Ian find Stevenson. ways. Or, you can find ways around this. I think I heard one of the SRI guys um, saying that he didn't think that uh, near-death experiences necessarily indicated survival of life after death because it could be a psychic explosion at the time of death that is able to draw in other information that's unverified, that, that they have no, no other way of verifying, which is – that's fine. It's, I don't think it's the most parsimonious answer, but like at the, at the very least, you can say that there's something – beyond the physicalist interpretation going on in a lot of these stories. And I, I think, that, again, I think that's a lot more solid footing than you'll find in a lot of the UFO stuff and a lot of the, the, mm -hmm. the cryptos cryptozoology stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that was that was part of the, the logic behind that. But also, you know, I, I wanted to outline, like, these are the hallmarks of an NDE, and they will keep coming back, um, which, again, is like – it's if you're familiar with rings research, a lot of this is not yeah. going to be surprising to you, but I think, I think it does get carried a little bit further into some of the fairyland encounters and some of the cryptid encounters. Um, you know, not every cryptid encounter, but a lot of cryptid encounters also have these hallmarks of other world travel as part of one of these contact modalities that I think you can say that's pretty close. Like, you know, the incidence of missing time in Bigfoot accounts is just bizarre to me. Yeah. There's odds factors but, across all of these different, um, you know, experiences or modalities, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And, uh, I think I sort of, because, you know, I've always sort of wrestled with the fact that, like, well, what is, why do some people have missing time and others don't have missing time? And I think that if there is an answer to that, and maybe everybody's going to be like, duh, Josh, of course, that's what it means. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that the presence of missing time signifies other world travel. I think that that's what that might indicate, which is which would explain why you have, you know, relatively relative, relatively mundane, right? Relatively mundane sightings of things like UFOs at a distance that don't have missing time. And then as soon as that missing time element's introduced, you say, okay, well, maybe there was some sort of travel. And I say other world travel because that's the terminology that I like to use. But if you're still stuck in the nuts and bolts thinking, you can just call it a, a straight up abduction. But yeah, I think that, I think that's, you know, and that might be a useful sort of, tool for saying okay well this is something more than just a uh yeah you know mundane sighting yeah yeah you can't sit there with a camera and you know see somebody being floated out the window or whatever the hell it is not not that it ever has because it seems like all these things stop working as soon as this stuff happens well that yeah. and you know i'm i'm increasingly convinced that the that the alien abduction scenario more often than not if not exclusively unfolds in that sort of astral realm and i yeah there's just, a chapter it about it, it. Yeah. Well, it, well, it looks like an obe i mean everything about it looks like an obe and then well you know people will say well what about the marks that people receive on their bodies during abduction so i'm like okay well Yes, that would seem to suggest that there's a physical component, but I also have to say that, you know, whenever people would wander, their souls would wander in the form of a werewolf. If you inflicted an injury to the werewolf, it would be mirrored on the human's body, even though the human stayed in bed, which is one of the earliest conceptualizations of things like werewolves. So there's plenty of precedence for that between yeah. that and things like stigmata. Like, it seems like an impression 
or an, an injury inflicted in one part of the world where one part of in another world, one part of say. reality or whatever yeah, is, can, is, can be mirrored, yeah, um, which also you can, you know, extend into why are there landing traces and things like that. Right. Well, well, the, the biggest one, the biggest pushback that or the biggest uh, concession that I have to make with the idea of abductions being astral is you have people abducted in their cars and the car <laughs> moves as well. So, uh, I have to do some animist well, dancing. I have to do some well, animist dancing also, to get around that. Yeah. But well, that but, yeah. also can be part of that time thing that you didn't address in the book. It could be part of the time thing. There are also people who have OBEs during abductions, which would seem to preclude it being an OBE itself. But mm-hmm. again, if we're dealing with polypsychism, maybe we're like Russian nesting dolls. You know, maybe we can just keep on <laughs> having OBE after OBE from soul to soul. You know? I, I don't know. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, it, you know, that that speaks to another thing you pull up in the book, and probably we've gone over it, but, you know, you you basically call the experience of the paranormal an altered state. And every uh, every example you bring up can be, you know, explained or at least considered as a human being being in an altered state or the brain being in an altered state. Um did you find that across everything through cryptid, you know, uh, uh, encounters and Bigfoot encounters and, and, you know, I, maybe not ghosts. Ghost people don't really seem to be in an altered state. Yeah, there are. I found a handful of like missing time ghost encounters, but they seem to be more along the lines of time slips. Um, things oh, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, which is why I think that represents a bleed over into our reality without the other world travel that you get. You know, um, when things take an interest in you and decide to pluck you over, that's when you get missing time and you slip into that ultra state of consciousness. But um, possibly, you know, possibly. Yeah, sometimes um, I just push into our reality with unbidden. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think that there are also examples just as we transgress into that other reality. Sometimes there might be. Uh, you know, alien shamans who come over from that reality <laughs> or like, you know, uh, yeah. big, big, but taking five dry grams in silent darkness. And that's why he always looks so surprised when you see him. You know, <laughs> I did ask There's... David Weatherly that I said, David, um, Bigfoot, physical or, pa- or paranormal. And he said, why not both? Yeah. I mean, but, but again, that, that speaks back to that, that McKenna quote and that young unionism that I just don't think people are quite prepared to, to sit with because it's awkward and it's messy and it doesn't make any sense to us. But, no. I think it's entirely valid that sort of we're sort of enmeshed in this false duality. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that sometimes the bleed over the experience is, is something bleeding over from there into our reality and people can say dimensions all they want to, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just call it the other world and move on. You know, you're, you're saying dimensions because you're trying to make it sciencey and that's just not a game that I want to play. Yeah. There, um, there is a whole chapter on how this can be pushed a little bit. Meaning areas where this, you know, where that veil might not be so, um, might be more permeable. Your monuments and mount, mount, what is it? Mount, mon, mon, mountains and monuments chapter. Yes. And you, you said what you did is you found you found correlation between natural and artificial earthworks, and um, and the increased occurrences of paranormal activity. Yeah, other people have talked about this. They've noticed it. You you reference those people. Um, so what do you think? Are these, you know, are they? <laughs> Can they be engineered or are they just there naturally or both or, you know, uh, some examples? Well, I, I think I'm going I'm to use an example that uh, touches on that sort of uh, on, on Weatherly's answer a bit. Right. So 
to answer that, I'll set it up with something com- completely unrelated, right? So a lot of a lot of ink has been spilt on the role of dissociation, um, yeah, and the role of childhood trauma in uh, in experiencers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I found it really interesting. I had this interaction with Ray Hernandez about like, you know, the incidents of child abuse. And he said, well, 80% of our respondents didn't indicate child abuse. And I said, okay, well that means 20% did, which is like really high. Um, and when you factor in with that, the idea that, you know, some people don't recognize their abuse or are afraid to report their abuse or, you know, any, anything like that, then yeah, it or suggests, if, if, if covered it up because it's a trauma, whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah, or, or don't remember their abuse. It suggests that there is a high incidence, but I, I think it is safe to say that it's not, you know, a majority of experiences even, but I do think that dissociation plays a role. And I do think that there might be multiple factors. I think the problem comes when you say it is a prerequisite, which, um, which I, I think the, the point needs to be made that like, d- it seems like dissociation might be very important, but whether that's brought about by psychedelics or the other intelligence taking a notice in you or trauma or, you know, predispositions that you might have just by the way that you were made, I think there's some room for discussion there. So I think it's a lot of different factors that we're dealing with. I say all that to answer your mountains and monuments uh, question, which um, might be my favorite chapter in the book. It's, um, I was I had this idea that stuck in my head ever since I visited my first uh, American hill. mound. Yeah. Um, oh, American yeah, mound. In, okay. Yeah, in my yeah my first fairy hills. You know, you just was I, that in I Georgia when we were there? Yeah, we went to Etowah. Uh, yeah, in Georgia. Um, Where they sold I mounds, had... chocolate bars in the uh, in the gift shop. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you excavate it and um, it has almonds in it, then it's not a mound. <laughs> 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 um, it's, it's near the it's, it's near the almond a, joy hills that are for yeah, exactly <laughs> um, but um but i was struck uh visiting ireland and seeing uh these fairy hills because there are just tons of them i think it's like i think the conservative answer i think the conservative answer is like sixty thousand, and this is an island the size of like you know indiana so like a lot of these things a lot of them have been destroyed but if you look at them the ones that haven't been touched, which is quite a few because there's still a good deal of... Uh, yeah, I saw some of your pictures. Well, I like if you look at a picture of some of these untouched uh, fairy forts and you put that right beside, like I have, I have a presentation where I show like a fairy fort in a cow pasture in like County Clare or something, right? And I have a picture of the Etowah Mound pre-excavation and i have i say to people i say okay which is the which is the mound and which is the fairy fort you know it's it's, it's, there they're they're indistinguishable right Mm -hmm. and so i i really wished that there would be i really hope someday to find uh, an entry in an old irish immigrants journal that says you know oh it looks like they're here too you know (laughs) um because the the resemblance is so uncanny but um a lot of what that uh that particular uh, chapter was about was trying to figure out okay well why like why are these window areas why did keel come up with this idea of window areas because there's some seems to be something to it and can we rescue that idea from the patently racist uh implications of it which oftentimes demonize you know indigenous spirituality like how can we sort of like rescue this or idea? say they couldn't do it because they were too stupid or whatever exactly right and so, so one of the things that i settled on was number one like 
the reason that we see so many similarities between monuments throughout the wor- world is not because there was this diaspora of a master race from Lemuria or somewhere like that. That's not that's not what we're talking about. I think yeah, it's that's too literal. Well, it's too literal, and I think it's I think it's really independent evolution of the same idea, like the bow and arrow. Yeah. Nobody nobody you know says that a master race came around showing people how to make bows and arrows, right? It, <laughs> it it arose because it works, right? It arose because it works, and I think that something similar might be going on with a lot of these tumuli and mounds and other monuments is because these things these things work, and that's why you see these similarities. And I think to to finally at long last answer your question. Um, I think that there is a situation where it's like a critical mass has to be reached and that's when the veil starts to thin. So some areas are just like that. Some areas are at like 10%. And if you get 90% human bodies <laughs> there, yeah. then you can push over that threshold. Not Maybe percentages are wrong, right? Maybe it's a 10 out of a hundred to break through that threshold. And you've got 10, 10 uh, thin veil points and you bring in 90 human body points and then you cross that threshold. Or maybe it's a lot of different factors because you hear people talk about these things. Oh, it's underground water. Oh, it's this mineral. Oh, it's that mineral. Oh, it's ley lines. And I think that yeah, maybe Jim Brandon talked this. about that a lot. Yeah. Well, and you know, and, and, and Greg Little's talked about it a good deal too. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that you sort of have to reach this critical threshold is, is my, some, my, the, the clearest, answer that I have for me that works for me is that you have to reach this critical threshold where, you know, some places might require five elements. They might require, you know, an underground stream and limestone and uh, stratified construction and be built across a ley line and have the dead buried there. And then it breaks through that, that critical threshold within the veil mm-hmm. and some areas just like that naturally in some areas, any combination of all those things. And I think that's sort of, I think that might be what we're, what we're seeing um, because no single idea I can outright say is, you know, phony. You know, I, I think there are a lot of different interesting avenues for why these sites seem more active. And I think it's just, uh, again, I think it's just a combination of different factors depending on a lot of the aspects of the area. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. But, but we'll say that a lot of these sites, if they weren't constructed as burial sites, if they weren't intended to be sepulchral, they will often become that over time. Hmm. So it became very, became very uh, common in certain parts of Ireland and the British Isles that, you know, these standing stones were never built necessarily with burials, but over time people would bury unbaptized infants there. So you yeah, have well, that way, way, way um, after, because they figured that there's something yeah. uh, special about that site and that it's, um, it's ritualistic and, you know, where are you going to have a ritual out in the middle of nowhere or where you see something that seems to have some sort of significance or power or whatever in that area? And it, yeah, exactly. you, as you say, it can take on another meaning. Um, what? I thought it was kind of interesting that the, the people that faked the crop circles, some of them told me, and that this is separately. It's not some kind of um, uh, conspiracy amongst them, but they said they'd be out there making crop circles and they'd say they'd see orbs and hear things and see flashes in front of their faces. And I said, this happen anywhere more than others? They said, yeah, around standing stones. Nice. <laughs> as luck would have it. Yes, um, exactly. So, so yeah. So and they were that, skeptical as they come and they were just completely kind of flabbergasted by this. Well, and so, I mean, so that, that brings up a lot of other stuff. I mean, you have some sites like, like Tara and in, in Ireland that have 
I believe, tens of thousands of human remains underneath. So obviously that would have intended from the start to be a site that would you could not only conjure this power, but would also be associated with the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you also have this association of mountains with the dead in a lot of different, especially Western European. But the argument can easily be made a lot of different countries, including, you know, the Indian subcontinent and parts of Africa. Yeah. Um, associations with mountains and the dead, which obviously is somehow tied into this fairy mountain belief that you see everywhere. And UFO bases are always underneath mountains, right? But you yeah. do reach a certain point with things like the window theory where window area theory where you you have to confront something that Peter Lavenda said, uh, which is basically that any nation, but especially post-colonial nations, are going to be haunted houses because there's just dead everywhere. And I would hmm. argue that probably even if there wasn't a history of invasions back and forth across human history, that somebody has died pretty much everywhere, right? Like you can't imagine it's not the case. So like trying to say, okay, well, does a death there really mean anything is, is another interesting question that you sort of have to wrestle with. Yeah. It's a, it, it, you know, it's a case by case basis. Like a lot of these things, you can't put a blanket statement on a lot of things that we're talking about here. Although you try to in the book and it's interesting that where you go with that. Um, Well, you know, I, I get frustrated writing these books sometimes because like, I insist on using like might be, seems to be, maybe sort of language. You should. Well, my go-to is like, you know, Mike has had all these very harrowing experiences and you read Mike's books and they're always very, you know, might be, seems to be, maybe. And I'm like, if Mike can do that, if Mike can go through what he's gone through and do that, there's no reason that anybody else who hasn't had those experiences can't do the same thing. But yeah, what it does no, is exactly. it does sort it's of end up one of the reasons the I really, little. yeah, the, one of the reasons I really respect Mike because he does, he refuses to have a uh, fixed explanation. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it, it, I was just going to say, so I mean, like it, 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 but that style can tend not necessarily this isn't a criticism of mike's work it's a criticism of the way that i've handled it it can make the the language a little bit clunkier so i think towards the end of the second volume when i talk about sort of like if the ecology of souls models hold true this is what i think is going on with the ufo phenomena i started off by saying okay i'm going to throw out all the mites and maybes just so we can streamline this concept a little bit so i can streamline this section but mites and maybes and asterisks all over everything well, is there anything that you don't put mites and maybes and asterisks on at, at the end of this? Um, a little bit. I mean, something's happening. I would not put an asterisk beside that. No. Um, the reality, again, the reality of psi phenomena, the validity of the near-death experience, um, I think are both um, no asterisks with that. The fact that these phenomena are somehow related, I would feel comfortable saying that... Uh, that there need, need be no asterisks with that. I'm not saying they're a, a single circle, but the Venn, they are Venn diagrams at the very least, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would, you know, there was a, there's a section in the headlessness uh, epilogue. Yeah, we didn't even actually, get to that. That, that. that was, it's a fascinating chapter too. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, there is a section towards the end of that epilogue where I say, you know, to speculate boldly, this is not a metaphor. This is literally what's happening. <laughs> um, just, just to sort of drive home the fact that, because you do wind up sort of in this airy fairy sort of new age language. And it's like, well, let's, let's get to, to brass tacks. Like, what do you mean? No, I, I literally mean this is, this, this is what's happening, but even that's still sort of couched in this, like maybe sort of language, but I'm what's just happening to, as, as, uh, um, well, I, I kind of feel what like people seeing headless aliens or no, no, no. I, I kind of feel like it's I kind of feel like it's giving away one of my one of my final conclusions. So I'm going to be a little bit coy about that. But, Go ahead. Um, no, no. I, but what it, I don't like is people. Say, I don't want to talk about it. You're going to read it in the book. 
Be coy. Okay, well, Go right ahead. Just this this idea that um, there is an inner light, which I think is exemplified by, you know, uh, after death phenomena and like also after death apparitions and the, some of the UFO phenomena and just the the omnipresence of light orbs throughout all paranormal phenomena. There is an inner, inner light within all of us that uh, that can be released on the point of death that is often symbolized by headlessness you know headlessness as being a liberation of the consciousness as a, as a broader symbol mm-hmm. and i you know i that's the point where which i because there's a lot of language about the inner light and this stuff and i say to speculate boldly this is not a metaphor like this is <laughs> this is literally what's what's happening like there is something in us that if you perceive it under the right conditions literally looks like a luminous presence that emerges from us because it's just mm-hmm. it's 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 so pervasive across all these different um encounters and you know you have the strong traditions of ghost lights and you know i would say that there are a lot of commonalities between experiences but the light phenomena is just one that comes up time and time again you know if you see a light in uh if you see a light in a a haunted house it's a ghost if you see a light in the sky it's a ufo if you see a light bobbing across an old uh neolithic ruin it's a fairy you know it's it's just the lights are just everywhere yeah there's Um, always so i and i i think that might be pure distilled soul um again, yeah, or, whatever, or, whatever we, that means. or what we yeah. we perceive as light um, because often yeah. these lights will not cast shadows yeah i don't talk about that but that's that's another good point which i think would suggest that maybe it's being seen in a different way than we would normally see mm-hmm. yeah it's not it's if you took a camera and pointed at it it would be something else or it'd be nothing right it's it's, it's your old question that you've had, like, you know, if, if, if you had a camera set up in a small cabin in Accord, New York on Christmas, 1986, what would you have seen? You know? Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm fairly convinced that you would have seen either something that made no sense at all or nothing. Um, because yes. the, the human nervous system in the, in, is, is not a camera. The eyeball might be, but the rest, everything else that perceives is not. Yes. Yeah, I think we're simpatico on that. Yeah. I have a very, very selfish question. That's that's fine. You know I'm obsessed with kachinas, right? Yes. And I've drawn parallels between some of the reported entities and some kachina d- depictions, you know, uh, uh, a.k.a. Pasky, <laughs> the Pascagoula well, alien. And Sam the Sandown Clown, I would argue. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think I saw that recently. Maybe you brought it up to me. But I think I don't I think know. I did. Yeah. yeah. What's the actual connection? I mean, these are anthropomorphic representations of aspects and forces of the natural world, at least as I understand it. So, you know, how does that translate to reported aliens, especially when, when the cultural reference is completely different? Or am I barking well, up the wrong tree? I don't know. I just think it's kind of fascinating. No, you're barking up a, a good tree here, and I don't know if I really have a good answer for you. I would... I would say that, well, first of all, I, I think that Kachinas also can have an ancestral component too. Is that correct? Yes, I believe so. And I think that speaks to the fact that they can be ancestors or personifications of things in the natural world really speaks to this um, well of souls that I've been talking about, like in this monist idea, right? That it's all sort of one thing. Now, why it would pick that particular cultural uh mask to manifest in to two guys in Pascagoula and to 
two kids in the Isle of Wight in the 1970s. Um, I don't have a good answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, and that's that's something that like, I th- but I think it's worth I think it's worth addressing because like, you know, you could. Why do things as perceived in other cultures appear to people who have no relationship to that culture? And that's not just the Kachina question. Like that's something that you see, like, you oh, know, yeah. I'm, I'm very guilty of it, but like a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, 14s are guilty of being like, Oh, you know, this person saw so-and-so in, uh, in, uh, you know, Nebraska in 1980. And it looks very much like a representation from the Belgian Congo. You know, it's like, okay, so why, why is it Nebraska? Maybe it has something to do with time being unmoored from place. Um, well, it could you know, be a, I, it could be of a coincidence as well. I mean, it's still, you know, I'm just drawing conclusions based on shapes and based on you know things that look the same to me. Doesn't mean that they're actually related. That that right. you know that's 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 my problem with not being barking up the right tree. Well, it's so tempting in these examples to be like, well, let's let's find out if Calvin and Parker had any Hopi blood in them, you know, but then that kind of gets icky all on its own. Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, I, I, I don't have an answer f- except for the fact that um, perhaps that's literally the way that these things look sometimes. And they just happen to look that way to the Hopi more and they just happen to you know, rifle through their Rolodex of appearances and mm-hmm. select that at random. Yeah. That just popped up. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, and, it and makes me really sorry. Unsa- Go ahead. I was just gonna say, that's a very unsatisfying answer, but there's some the more best. sirens. I, it makes me really unhappy that I didn't ask, um, Cliff Mahoudi this, um, because he's the only Hopi that I ever knew or no, he was Zuni. Um, but they also have Kachinas and I've, 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 I don't think I ever asked him about Pascagoula, which would have been a good question. Well, you know that um, there's another example um, that I'm going to sort of do a little bit of typing here in the background. Um, yeah, look at Because it, look I want to make sure um, I get this right. Uh, we do this during the uh, the uh, uh, um, ufology tarot lot. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, <laughs> let me look that up. <laughs> who's, who's typing? Um, there is a – this is actually my first interaction with Tim Renner um, was he had told this story about a location in his section of Pennsylvania called Chickie's Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there were some children there. Um, I believe it was children, uh, but it was um, – no, sorry, it was a woman, rather. Um, I'll just go ahead and read this. Um, a yeah. woman, she was picnicking there with her friends, and they went to leave and get some water. She saw this 11 or 12-foot-high mummified creature with what looked like knives sticking out of the side of its head. And uh, that puts me in the mind of of a Kachina or, Pas- or Pasky, you know, that idea of knives sticking out of the side of its head. Yeah, um, or what it, that look like knives. I actually have never asked or looked up what um, things that look like knives, but probably aren't sticking out the side of Kachina's heads, are supposed to be. Um, it may be beyond description to somebody that's not in the tribe, but yeah, that's that's also true. Um, so I'm mean, so part of me wonders if this is you know it's not that like oh these things choose Kachina to look like, but like this is just one way that they look that got interpreted as Kachina and sort of got codified. Mm-hmm. In the uh, amongst you know tribes in the southwest, uh, but yeah, that's I don't know, man. I do not know. It's a good question. 
and, and it's kind of funny. I'm actually, <laughs> I found under my bed, um, I picked up a Kachina for you and I'm looking at it right now. So I'll have to give that to you next time I see you. Okay. Yeah. Of, of, yeah. of course. I'm, I'm always, uh, it's funny cause people will buy gifts for me and I'm like, okay, another thing with an alien face on it. All right. But then, oh great. Now I've got a helicopter going by. It is Los Angeles. Um, but every once in a while, there's something really cool like that. So thank you so much, Josh. Actually, I apologize. It's not a Kachina. I'm looking at the back here. It's, it's a yay doll. Are you familiar with this? Yes. Okay, yeah, it's, it's it's a little yay doll that was made. Anyway, I, just, I saw it and I said Greg would like that. And I, I would. I just I got a back. I just got a yay um, uh, Navajo rug a couple months ago. It's hanging on my wall. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. yeah, I got this back in like November, and it somehow found its way under my bed, and it happened <laughs> to resurface into my life at the same time that I wrote about Sam the Sandown Clown for someone else oh, for another course. project that I'm working on. Oh, so, perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, we're almost at two hours. Um, I think we talked about this, but I wanted to ask you, and, you know, as a good ending, the reason that people write books generally, if they're good books like this one, is to answer questions for themselves. And they're forced to do this this, uh, research to do it. So at the end of this, how did this book change you? And... Were there synchronicities around it? Did things happen in your life while you were writing it? Are they still just, you know, how did, how did the writing affect you? Oh man. Um, well, let's, let's hit kind of heavy here. Um, okay. So Please. I am um, in August of 2020. And I think this is going to be the first time it's ever mentioned on air. Um, I checked myself Perfect. into rehab for, uh, alcoholism, uh, all by myself. Like, no, it was not an intervention or anything. It was just, I had gotten to a point, there were a lot of different factors in my life and I just fallen into a bottle and couldn't get out. I have a um, little rock in, on my desk that you sent me. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, and it's been a great experience of smooth sailing ever since then, you know, didn't haven't haven't gone back to it and coming up on two years like it's been like a switch was flipped um but it was an absolutely transformative experience in a lot of ways with some of the most profound synchronicities that i've ever had um and uh, i can talk about this at some time uh, Mm -hmm. when we're not towards the end of an interview but let's just let's just say that like this was the wildest sync storm that i'd ever had in my life um which you know is entirely consistent, right? I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a death yeah. and rebirth kind of yeah. Motif, you went right? through an incredible, an extreme change, and these things are going to happen. In fact, it'd be kind of weird if they didn't. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I'll, I'll provide one one sink uh, for the for the case of uh, just sort of providing an example. Um, I have tended with my boys to get really worked up about how much software I have to upload, you know, into their brains. Like not only, <laughs> not only just like, you know, being decent human beings and being respectful of other people and being compassionate human beings, but like also just like just the, the, the immense amount of like little bits and bobs here and there that we pick up over the course of our lives. Like, you know, hands yeah. in your air, like hands in the air. Like you just don't care. Like, I don't know where I heard that. Do I have to teach them that? Are they going to know that phrase? You know, <laughs> um, so one of the things, for some reason, um, I got absolutely fixated one day on Aesop's fables. I'm like, you know, where did I pick up Aesop's fables? Did I see them from a cartoon? Did I see them from a book? I've got to teach them Aesop's fables at some point. And I obsessed over yeah, Aesop's Yeah, need the grounding, fables. yeah. 
all day i obsessed over aesop's fables and i pushed them around in the stroller and i for our walk and the entire time i'm just stressed out for some reason about aesop's fables and i get home and uh my mom calls me and she says hey uh we're at the beach and we went to a bookstore and we just picked up a book we think the boys will really like and it's a collection of aesop's fables of course it is (laughs) of all the I mean, I I know, again, like all good synchronicities, that means a lot more to me than it will ever mean to anybody else. But that was just absolutely uncanny. Um, So I I started working on Ecology of Souls in October of 2020. And uh, I think that it really is a natural outgrowth of that entire uh, rebirth experience that I had. Um, So... Probably part of this is was me working through some of that, and you know, it was one of those things where I was like, I want to do something that I, that is, I want to get something off my chest that has been there for a while because I've been thinking about this topic, as we said, for for years and years and years. So that was sort of the genesis of the book, and on the other side of it, I'm much more at peace about death. I mean, like you look through the history of things that can happen to you, and it just it once you sort of take away the stigma of death it looks a lot of things just don't look as as frightening like you know what's the reason that we're so frightened of of cryptids right we're afraid that they're going to kill us it's like well okay so and that's not that big of a deal i mean it is a big deal right it is a big deal but it's really not a big deal you know you want to talk about a big deal a big deal is is letting down your loved ones you know a big deal is wasting the opportunities that you have you know a big deal if you want to ascribe to the Egyptian uh, <laughs> cosmology, a big deal is getting your soul devoured by Amet. You know, that's, that's a big <laughs> deal. Getting, getting killed by a UFO laser beam or getting your blood sucked out by a chupa in the Brazilian sky is not that big of a deal. Um, it's actually more exciting than most ways of dying. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's, it's so funny sometimes whenever like the couple of times that I've had pneumonia, I always say to somebody, I'm like, I really hope I don't die of pneumonia because I'm going to be so embarrassed. Um, <laughs> Because you want to die in some sort of, you know, miraculous way. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think that it's really changed uh, my perspective on on uh, death. And I will say that there is some indication that uh, the books are sort of a minor synchronicity generator, at least for a time. Barbara had some pretty cool uh, synchronicities uh, while editing it. Yeah, she, uh, she mentioned that in the show, yeah. Tim sent me a dream uh, during the work process that was, I don't think he quite realized it, but it had a lot of the symbolism that I was uh, looking at. So I do think there's a little bit of a minor synchronous synchronicity generator qualities to some of the books. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it really has, um, I suspect that if you are interested in these topics, I suspect that it'll be a really reassuring book in a lot of ways because of that. Um, it's, uh, it's it, so it's not only that, but it's also what we alluded to earlier about it allowing me to sort of integrate it within my own faith framework and to give myself some peace with how I think these things work. Mm. And uh, probably part of the reason it's really attractive to me because it, it it does give me that peace. And you know, who knows? Maybe if you know you're a fourteen with Christian leanings, it might speak to you as well. It's not an explicitly Christian book. It's just I'm just talking about the afterward. But like, there's a way to make this work. I guess is what I would say. Um, and I would suspect that that uh, there's a way to make this work. Um, 
there's a way to make this work regardless of your spiritual framework, because I think we're looking at the watch and not time itself. Yeah. And all we can do is look at the watch really, as we've said, um, God, I've got probably 20 more questions, but I don't want to make people sit through more than a couple hours. So maybe we will do another show or at least bring it up next time. Um, we talk. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, well, you know, that's something that Barbara and I ran into because Barbara got the first interview because she deserves it because she worked her tail yeah, off. Yeah, she worked this. her butt off for that. Um, and, uh, to help. and like we just sat, I remember we just sat down before we started recording and said, how are we going to talk about this? Because it's, it's so. <laughs> we didn't do has, that. <laughs> well, it, well, it has, it has a breadth and a depth that like you could just take a chapter and just talk about a chapter for an entire show. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's, I know it almost looks, um, like an ADD list of, of things when you look at it, right? Cause it's like <laughs> NDEs and fairies and psychopaths and soul traditions and, and the wild hunt and ley lines and monuments and cryptids. And yeah. Things. We didn't even get to a lot of that stuff, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 but you know, that was part of it too. As I said, this is a snapshot of how I make it work in my head right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's find the evidence to support those suspicions that I had. And luckily a lot of that evidence was forthcoming. It's got, I think it's 4200 in notes um yeah and uh it was it and, existed uh, in the future before you started working on it that's how these wonderful things happened yeah happened. so I, I guess i'll give the specs on it um it's yeah. uh it's available um in print form as volume one and volume two uh and also there is a separate book that is just the end notes. I have three appendices talking about the dead and alien abductions and UFOs seen over burial places. Um, and that third volume contains the appendices, the end notes and the bibliography. It's available for purchase as a physical copy because I know there are some completionists out there like me, but it's also and available. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, but it's also available um, freely to download from my website because I feel like it's sort of a raw deal. If you get a book full of end notes and there are no end notes. <laughs> in it, right? So you can go to Joshua Cutchin.com J O S H U A C U T C H I N.com and um, click the link to it's easy enough to find. If you look for the ecology of souls companion, you can find that, uh, that reference material. It's also available because it is one single book as a combined um, ebook as well um that you can find it's both volumes one and two obviously also contains the end notes because space isn't a constraint with the ebook so that was mm -hmm. that was really important to me too you know i could have split it up and nickel and dimed people for volume one ebook volume two ebook but i just said no it's one book put it in there and so to that extent chapters carry over from volume one into volume two and unfortunately i'm feeding the beast these are all only available at amazon because it is self-published maybe someday down the road that'll change um it is so, yeah. the easiest way to do it and also to do it yourself. I mean, there's there's uh, other self-publishing venues, but Amazon has just made it so ridiculously easy that you kind of have it, to do that, especially with something like this. It has been surprisingly user-friendly, I, I do have to say that. So to reiterate, Volume 1 print, Volume 2 print, companion book, print or free download, or ebook Volumes 1 and 2 uh, is also available as well. So that's The Ecology of Souls. Thank you so much, Josh. What song do you want me to play at the end? Um, so there's this uh, video game that I've, I'm absolutely in love with. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's called, it's got an awful title. It's called Hellblade Sinua's Sacrifice. And I've talked about this numerous places. 
and it's about a uh i believe she's a she's a celtic shaman who takes her dead lover's head across the river of death in her boat and fights to bring him back and she fights all the norse pantheon mm-hmm. and uh it's basically ecology of souls the video game uh like it's um I, I it has so many themes and so many things in there that now that i've written about this i can't unsee them um <laughs> and uh it's uh it's one of the few video games that I've played multiple times uh, and actually like not listened to a podcast while I'm playing it. Like I'm just absolutely enraptured by this. Um, so if anybody wants ecology of souls, a video game, that's it. But to that extent, I put out a blog post uh, called the soundtrack of souls, which is a collection of the the music that I listened to while writing the book. And I think it also makes a good compliment uh, for reading the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it, you know, doesn't have lyrics or anything. So it's uh so it's very conducive to being able to turn it on and read and not be distracted. Um, but the final battle of Hellblade um, features you uh, fighting a uh, spoiler alert. You fight a losing battle. That's the only way to win the game is to stop fighting, which is just a master stroke of video <laughs> game design. But um, has you fighting a losing battle against uh, Hella. And uh, it is set to a track by the Passarella Death Squad, and it's called Just Like Sleep. Um, Yeah, as I say in the blog post, if there is an Ecology of Souls single, it is this track. All right, we'll play it. Thank you so much, Josh, and we'll see you soon, and we'll talk to you even sooner. All right, sounds good. Love.